702. Okay, 702, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell, he is my father's older mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, I know that he will care for me. How many of you have found that true? Let's keep finding it true throughout the year ahead. So angels and Jesus is our topic for the moment. We're going to try and get angels and Jesus. We're going to do fallen angels. And again, as I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, we are not going to spend a a deep dive on fallen angels or demonology. I don't believe it needs to have first billing in our study. And so uh, we're just going to hit a few highlights there. um, And we'll finish a little bit with um, angels today and in the future. Okay? So we know, we've already looked at many times, that angels were present at the birth of Jesus. Okay? 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us what? Received up into glory. Okay. The obvious implication we see here is that Jesus interacted with angels. Angels saw him. They were involved in his life here on earth. We, we already looked a little bit at his birth. Remember Zacharias when, when the angel came and spoke to him about what was to be? Um, in Mary's life, when the angel came and, and notified her of Jesus' coming, uh, Joseph also got to see the angel that announced the coming of, of a son that would be the savior of the world. The shepherds saw the angels. So all of those were interactions of angels announcing or pro- preceding the coming of Christ, right? At his birth. Angels were also involved in his temptation. Take a look at Matthew chapter 4. An account that probably most of us are somewhat familiar with. In verses 1 through 10 is the account of Satan tempting Jesus, right? And what will we find in here in a little bit? We've already hinted at it as we've gone through this study. Satan was a fallen angel. So here is the fallen angel, the prince of this air, the prince of this earth, who is interacting and tempting the Son of God himself. So that is an angel that was involved in a negative way in the life of Jesus. But look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and did what? ministered to him all right so in that account or that that um, history lesson for us we see the angel the 
um, of this world tempting Jesus, but after Jesus was done with the temptation, after the devil left, angels came from heaven and ministered to him. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? Loretta, what are you... We're going to see in another place here in a little bit that, that angels were prepared to minister to Jesus, even though he didn't call upon them. Okay? But it is. That's an exciting contrast. That, and and we'll, we'll see that, you know, in, um, I believe it's in James, isn't it, that it says that the demons knew and they trembled. Okay, so even the demons know of Jesus, and so does Satan. All right, so quite a contrast. Um, angels were involved with Jesus in Gethsemane. Luke twenty-two forty-three. So here is the account of Jesus in the garden. We all know it pretty well, that he was praying and agonizing over what he faced. And he says, ultimately, not my will but yours be done. And then it says in verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Now it's kind of hard sometimes for us to recognize or to realize that our Savior, the Lord God himself in human form, needed to be strengthened by angels. And yet he was what? Fully human. And yet fully God. I don't understand how that works. I don't know if you can either in our finite mind but he was fully God fully human and that humanness in him needed the strengthening of the angels okay Trudy okay good all right now here we see in in Matthew chapter 26 another account that probably most of us are fairly familiar with so after the prayer in the garden, right? What happened? The crowd came to arrest him, remember? And Peter, in his, his um, zealousness for Christ, drew his sword and, and was ready to fight. And, and what did Jesus say in, in verse um, 53? Or do you think that I cannot pray, now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Think about that. There were 12 legions of angels in heaven, set and prepared, if Jesus would have asked. But instead, he loved you, and he loved me so much, that he was going to go to the cross. Twelve legions of angels could have delivered him, or it appears. But instead, his love for us took him to the cross. Angels were also involved in his resurrection. Matthew 28, so you may just have to flip a page or two. Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So an angel was sent from heaven to roll the stone away. Not so much that Jesus could get out, right? 
He'd already been resurrected, but so that people could see in and see, hey, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty, praise God. Then in verse 4, and the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Fear of who? The angel. So even the lost guards, the, at the centurions at the, at the stone recognized there was something special about this and they fell and was if, as if they were dead before the angel. Continuing in verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you so. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Okay? So the angel announced to them, He's not here, he is risen. And he comforted them and even though they were at first afraid of him. So what do we see about angels in general here with the Jesus? They served Jesus. So the obvious question is, do we? Do we? Okay. Any comments or questions there? All right. Fallen angels, my least favorite subject. Originally, we would have to say that Lucifer, and I would use that terminology for him prior to his fall, was an anointed cherub. If we'll look in Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, we need to recognize something as we, as we look at this passage of Scripture. Ezekiel 28, obviously we know, is a prophetic book that talks about um, things to come as well as things that are. And um, he starts out with a discussion of a particular king of Tyre. I think that's the way you say it. <clears throat> A son of man, and I, and I see in verse 2, it says, the prince of Tyre. Now we're going to see in a minute there's an important change that takes place. But this is a discussion about a specific king at a specific time in a specific country. But as it progresses, we see it begin to describe which we can obviously recognize as Lucifer. Or as we will know him, Satan. Okay? In Ezekiel 12 and through 14, or 28, 12 through 14, I'm sorry. Chapter 28, verse 12 through um, 14, we see the change take place, I believe. Look in verse, I'm sorry, verse 12. Son of man... Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now, what did he, what did he call him at first? 
It was the prince of Tyre, right? Was what he started out the discussion with. Here in verse 12, he calls him the king of Tyre. There's a graduation that has taken place here. And I want you to note that change. There's something has different has, has happened. Something new has come about. And this, I believe, is where it begins to describe more about Satan himself or Lucifer than it did before this point. I can't be dogmatic about that, but I think that's a legitimate discussion or a legitimate point to be made. In verses 12 through 14... Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis and topaz, diamond, beryl, oinx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, and gold. The worship the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. So it's a created being, right? Following on in 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. So here we see that this angel, this fallen, that will be a fallen angel, was at one time an anointed cherub. Some would argue that he might be an equal to, or maybe even above, Michael the archangel, or another archangel. I don't see that I can, can, can go along all with that, but that, that is some thought process that's out there. Okay? He had the seal of perfection. He was created, by God, we've seen that before. All angels were created of God and were answered to him. He was arrayed or decorated or um, arrayed would be a good way or dressed, if you want to put it simply, by his creator in verse 13. He was present in Eden. And what do we recognize as his presence in Eden? Most of us go right to the idea of the serpent, right? Right? Okay, so at that point, he was a fallen angel. But at some point, he was on the holy mountain of God, in the presence of God. So he was the same as any angel, really, at that point. But he came Satan, or became Satan, by choice. And the word Satan means adversary okay let's look at verses 15 through 18 and we'll see the fall you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you what iniquity or sin right by the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within And you sinned. Who chose to sin? He chose sin. His fall was the result of his choice. Continuing. 
Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. I devoured you and I will turn and I turned you to the ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Verse 19. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Okay? So we see the fall, how it took place, how, how his pride, and in a minute we're going to look at a few more things about, about his fall, but, but how that was, was an event recorded in Scripture for us to see. And especially in verses 18 and 19 are looking towards his final destiny, his final judgment, if you will. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. So this is after Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Christ has reigned. And in verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. Remember, he's released and he raises a rebellion against Jesus Christ. And, and I, this just blows me. I just can't grasp how a thousand year reign of the personal presence of Jesus Christ here on this earth for a thousand years, ruling and judging just, justly and righteously. And yet at the end, one guy with a big mouth can raise an army to come against him. But in verse 10, the devil who deceived them, and that's the key right there. That's why Jesus, in chapter 24, as he's answering his disciples about the end times and things to come, what is the very first thing he gives them? See that you are not deceived. And so we have to hold on to that idea that there is deception that will take us astray if we allow it to. So the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So his end has been prophesied and the defeat has already taken place because Jesus rose from the dead and that's where he's headed. John chapter 8, verse 44. So Jesus is teaching here and he says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is the liar, is a liar and the father 
of it. That's who we, that's who the prince of this world is. Okay? That's Satan by choice. Let's look now at Isaiah chapter, <clears throat> or Isaiah, however you want to say it. Isaiah 14, 12. <clears throat> Someone like to read Isaiah 14, uh, 12 through 15 for me. All right. <clears throat> there are, in this passage of Scripture, five, if you want to do a sermon outline, you're welcome to do that, five I will statements by Satan or by Lucifer, right? What does he say? First, I will ascend to heaven. I'm going to be up there. I'm going to displace God, in essence, on his throne. The second one, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Wrong. <laughs> I heard somebody say it. I will sit on the mount of the, tra- of the congregation. In other words, he'll be worshipped. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Again, places of prominence, looking for worship and, pri- and, and he's going to be prideful. That's the bottom line. I will be like the most high. Not going to happen, right? But he's, that's his mindset. That's what he is about. And what is the ultimate bottom line for this? Verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. His end is already determined okay what can we learn from that what can we learn from the I wills what is the center letter in sin I see that's the one thing we can really learn from this is when we get ourselves in and we're so focused on that unholy trinity of me myself and I we can fall into sin. We can allow ourselves to be prideful to the sense of our demise. Pride is not a good thing. Paul writes to to Timothy in his first letter in in chapter 3 and verse 6, and he's talking about the overseer qualifications uh, for pastors and, and by implication deacons as well. And in verse 6, he says, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into some, the, the same condemnation as the devil. That's a pretty serious warning, is it not? That we who lead churches, or even those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, if we allow ourselves to be too prideful, too puffed up, too eye-oriented, have too much meitis. We can get prideful, and we risk sinning against Christ, against God. And so we need to be aware of that. Those are lessons we can learn from Satan. You didn't come here to learn from Satan today, did you? <laughs> you learn from his example, right? 
Okay. What about his hosts? What can we say about those? Now, there, there's a, uh, there are been volumes and volumes of, of books written about demonology and about demons and about things. But again, I'm not going to give him front billing on this study. But there are a couple of things that we need to be aware of, okay? Demons are simply fallen angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Go ahead, someone and read that if you get there. Okay. So we see by this implication that the devil and his angels, which are truly just demons, they are the fallen ones of heaven, and they are destined for the same end, are they not? So says the Bible. Okay. How about Matthew twelve twenty four? Someone look there real quick, and I'll go to Revelation. So we can keep moving along. Beelzebub. Okay. So there is um, an implication, falsely so, that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of demons. Okay. He goes on to prove them wrong. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. There's that word again. Deceives, right? Deceives the whole world. He has cast to, He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Once again, their fate has been determined. Okay? James 2.19, I think I've already referenced this one. Someone got that close or memorized? And what? Trembles before the Lord our God. Okay? So we recognize that Satan and his demons, his host, they recognize Jesus for who he is. They probably also know their ultimate fate because they know the scriptures probably better than you and I do. But still, they're about Satan's plan to disrupt Christians and believers and to thwart the cause of God. Now in 2 Peter 2 through 2 4 and Jude 6, those are close together. Let's take a look quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So we see that they're they chose to follow Satan, chose with a free will against God. How about Jude chapter or Jude 6? I always want to say chapter. We get so used to that, do we not? There's just a few books in the Bible that we can not have to reference chapters, but Jude, verse 6. 
And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay? Again, implying that they chose to follow Satan. They chose to sin against God. All right? Someone want to look at Revelation 9.14 for me? We're in the neighborhood. Let's take a look. Okay. Let's talk briefly, and I say briefly because we're going to run out of time if we don't, but about the difference between confined angels and active angels. Okay? It is obvious as we study the scripture that there are some that are active and moving, and there are some that are confined for another time. The fallen angels, yes, I'm sorry. The fallen angels. The others are in heaven waiting for direction from God. Okay, so these are those that have been fallen. They are of a great number. There's a lot of them. But they are actively seeking to work in this world. And then there are those that are confined. The scripture tells us that it's at a certain time, at an appointed time, they will be released to do their work. Now, what do you think that means? What, what kind of comments do, might you have on that? Well, let me, let me start the discussion out. Why would they be confined? For the purpose of God, right? He has a plan. Now, I, if, if any of you do much studying on this one, there are a lot of theologians who would try and indicate that these fallen angels or these confined ones were a result of um, the acts of Genesis chapter 6 and the Nephilim. Okay? They propose the idea that angels came, um, fallen angels came and had relations with humankind and created an unholy line. Most of them that hold that would also say that that's why <clears throat> there was the cause or the need to destroy the world at the time of Noah. I can't find that. I can't see that. And especially in light of the fact that in Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in discussing marriage, when he was brought to him a question about, well, if this woman marries this man and he dies and he marries her brother and he dies and all this progression of the question that they're trying to set a trap for Jesus, they said, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And what does Jesus say? They'll be like the angels and there will be no marrying and giving in marriage. So the implication, if you remember, we already looked at this briefly, the indication is that angels do not procreate. And if angels don't procreate, how on earth could they come and, and give their seed to the people of man? Kathy, you got a comment? The only way that could happen, that would be the only way it Yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, but, but again... Yeah, I, I just don't feel like I can comfortably be, be on that. What I would like to think, there's several, 
and, and I think Matt told me one time he could think of four, at least, interpretations of that Genesis 6 account. And I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but, but basically there was, and, and this was probably the most likely for me, there was a godly line from the, from the son, Adam's son, Seth, and an ungodly line from the son of Cain, and that they began to interact when they were not supposed to. That's, that's the one that I probably could hang my hat on most, okay? There's also an implication that people have that they take that and they say, that's also where polygamy got started. Because if you look at the terminology, it's, it sounds almost like these ungodly were, were marrying just as many and often as, as they wanted, okay? There's also a, another version or another thought process that says that's just basically a representation of the original fall of man. Okay? So, so what do you need to do? You need to be the Berean. Study the word of God for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take somebody else's word for it. But study the word of God for yourself. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? Okay, good deal. It's, it's not an easy subject. I've, I've wrestled with that a lot because a lot of the guys that I listen to would lean towards that idea that the fallen angels uh, went into human women and, and that caused a disruption in the DNA um, and made it non-human, non-redeemable. So be aware of, of that. All right. See, so you you got an extra one you didn't count on. Are the details important there? I don't think they're as important as understanding that it was God's intent to come find some of them for a later time and later purpose. And that purpose was ultimately to glorify him. Okay? So let's talk briefly about spiritual warfare, and we're going to try and bring this in for landing. <coughs> All right, so demons are Satan's servants and are committed to his scheme to thwart the plan of God. All right, so we understand that Satan's end has already been determined. We already know that, that he is active because these are the things that we need to remember. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Someone want to look at that? Okay. So in the midst of that, we saw multiple names that we have related in this study to angels, right? And none of these are going to be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. They can't do it. They may kind of pick at you and, and, and um, influence you. I, I think I would also add to that that they cannot possess you if you have the Holy Spirit in you. It would make sense to me that the Holy Spirit occupying this would not be tolerant of an occupation of an evil being. However, does that mean that they can't influence you? No, it does not. Okay? How about 1 Corinthians 15.25? Okay? And he's speaking of Christ, right? And he will reign till all what? All enemies, not just some, all, including fallen angels, will be put under his feet. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What does it say our weapons are? Mighty in God. And if we depend upon that, we have victory assured to us over these evil beings. I want to look just briefly, we're running out of time. So Ephesians chapter 6. Most of us probably recognize this passage of scripture. However, I don't think, especially in the day and time in which we live, that it is inappropriate for us to review this again and again and again. Ephesians chapter 6, let's just do verses 12 and 13. For we do not... wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore what does it mean therefore based upon that therefore take up the whole armor of god and that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand and then it'll go on and talk about the, the different pieces of the armor of God, right? And what they mean. How, anybody ever done a study on, on the, the implements of the armor of God? Okay, where does every single one of them come from? Christ. Christ. And when his seal of the Holy Spirit is on you, you have the opportunity to put on all of this and fight the battle. It doesn't mean you're going to be saved from the battle. But you're able to go through the battle with the strength and the armor of God. To be strong in God and the power of his might. Amen? All right. All right. Um, Angels today and the future. Let's just, Hebrews 1.14 tells us what? Anybody remember? We've looked at this scripture before. They are ministering spirits. Angels are ministering spirits. They're still here today, still to minister to us today. All right? To strengthen us, encourage us. All of those things that we looked at, they still have, are available to us today. But what is the caveat? At the will of God. See, remember angels still answer to God. They get their directions and their marching orders from God. They only work at his will and under his direction. All right? So when you say, I stubbed my toe in the middle of the night, why didn't that angel, that special angel of mine, keep me from stubbing my toe? God didn't tell him to. Okay? It might be a lesson. Turn on the light. (laughs) A wake-up call. (laughs) Right? Okay, good. So that's probably the biggest thing we need to remember. In the future... They're going to be involved in the judgment of God. All you have to do is start reading in Revelation from chapter 9 to, ver- to 19, and you see how, maybe even in 4, you're going to see how they, they're involved in worship in chapters 4 and 5. 
They're really involved in the worship of God himself, but they also were involved in judgment at the direction of who? The only one that was worthy to break the seals, to bring a judgment, who is who? The lamb who was slain for our good. So they will be involved in judgment in the future. Again, when we get maybe to the eschatology study, we'll look at that a little bit closer. But just know this. They're out there. They're ready to minister to you. And they love you. They care for you. They're watching you. They're watching this worship service to see how it goes. You know why? Because they don't get the opportunity. They are not redeemed beings. We are. And so they're watching to see how that redemption makes a difference in our lives as we worship God. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word and for the study that you've given us and that our responsibility, Lord, is is to study for ourselves. And we, we thank you that you've given us your precious word that helps us to do that, that we can open the word of God for ourselves, we can study for ourselves, and we can understand for ourselves who you are and how much you love us. We thank you for your angels that will be there for us when when you want us to, to see them or to experience them. Lord, we thank you for your love that drives that to care for us. Lord God, we don't want to worship the angels. We want to worship you and in your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.